the Trump impeachment trial comes to a close, can Washington move forward? We've got some early election buzz out of Ohio, and we'll talk about the threat of white supremacists in the military. All that and our featured guest of the week, Israeli journalist Barack Ravid. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode six of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. What makes this week different than all other weeks, Jared? I will tell you the answer. I just don't probably know it in Hebrew. Pitchers and catchers have reported baseball is back. And that is something that can bring Americans together, can't it? Absolutely. And it's, you know, the annual rite of passage for people to start rooting against my beloved New York Yankees. Well, there you go. And at least the entire country can get behind my Chicago Cubs because this it will be the year they retake their second World Series championship in my lifetime. I believe it. All right, we got some news to cover, and we'll also want to get to our guest. Topic one in front of us is the impeachment of Donald J. Trump is over in the uh, rearview mirror. The impeachment trial was moving forward, uh, went into the weekend. Uh, there was a push to call witnesses. The Democrats uh, forced a vote to call witnesses. It passed, surprising them even. And rather than drag out the trial for several weeks of deposing witnesses, uh, the majority and minority leaders sort of went into a room and came out and surprise no witnesses actually just kidding we're going to just put this whole thing to a vote and president trump was acquitted for a second time but the real news is not just the result of the impeachment jared it is donald trump taking aim at the republican minority leader of the senate mitch mcconnell following both uh, his floor speech after the vote and an op-ed that he wrote in the wall street journal uh, blasting trump and holding him responsible even though he voted to acquit him what do you make of this as a democrat watching the show well you know it seems to be that mitch mcconnell has is in for the worst of all possible worlds here right he lays out there he keeps the caucus together does not allow democrats to to impeach the press or to convict on the impeachment count and then turns around uh takes a whack at the president and or the former president, uh, and then whack, Donald Trump hits him with a political two-by-four, issues a two-page statement, which one commentator observed is like Donald Trump saved up his tweets for two weeks and then issued them as a press release. Uh, but you know what does this really mean going forward? I think it means that we will go back to the conventional warfare between the Republicans and the Democrats, but I think we've seen that at least in some regard, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell will be able able to get some business done, even if it is uh, around the edges, at least to start. And maybe there's a possibility of some uh, bipartisan collaboration if Mitch McConnell can not become or, or hold off the more extreme elements in his caucus. Obviously, you and the Democratic Party have your own civil war burning between the Quad and the centrist Democrats. Uh, we now have clearly a civil war between Donald Trump uh, and uh, most of the Republican Party that remains in Congress. Uh, but at the 
the same time, uh, we saw the results uh, of the impeachment uh, with a very quick vote uh, after Democrats were saying they wanted to call witnesses and suddenly didn't want to anymore. A little bit of a question mark of whether this whole charade was for their own base or to actually get a conviction. Uh, But I will say the fact that the majority of minority leaders wanted to put it to bed quickly and get on with America's business uh, could be a sign that we can move forward indeed and start working together again. One would hope, but you know, now uh, all those Republican senators are now on the record of supporting yet again the uh, clearly seditious behavior of the former president. Um, so they're going to have that. Uh, I guess I don't think we say as Jews cross to bear, but they're going to have to deal with that going into the going into the midterms when a lot of the Senate is up. Yeah, but remember we we heard from Representative Mike Gallagher who who explained his position of you know holding the president accountable, believing that he did something wrong but not favoring impeachment. Um, That'll be an argument you'll hear from a lot of Republicans on the trail. All right. Topic two, the election season getting going early in Ohio. Um, we have a special election about to happen or or in the offering in the great state of Ohio, where Representative Marsha Fudge is going to be uh, confirmed, hopefully, as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And the race to succeed her is shaping up to be another skirmish in this left and center left battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. You have a mainline Democratic candidate in Chantel Brown and a Bernie Sanders Democrat in D- Nina Turner, who have both emerged as the front runners. And the issue of Israel has started to take take center stage. Uh, there's some questions about um, conditioning aid to Israel that have been raised, uh, BDS as it relates to free speech. And I think this is going to be yet another opportunity for Democratic voters to show that they are centrist and center-left voters and who really value the U.S.-Israel relationship. And my prediction is Nina Turner is going to is gonna get beaten in a walk here. Uh, but I have been wrong before, so who knows? Well, I'll just say that I think uh, really what is the chance is to prove whether or not Democrat majority for Israel actually matters and can make any difference whatsoever, because we're going to see a lot of these primaries show up with candidates who want to condition aid to Israel versus candidates who support the traditional U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, And if your party isn't able to get it together and make sure that these anti-Israel candidates, uh, you know, stay out of Congress, uh, it's going to be very difficult for your party. Yeah, listen, you know, I, I think that uh, we have to, as a uh, the mainline Democrats, the traditional Democrats who value this relationship, uh, announce both at the same time that we are for the strong U.S.-Israel relationship and we, unlike many Republicans, oppose QAnon. Uh, and did I say that right? Uh well I, well, I said quad before, so I can't okay. even say squad, okay. right? So don't ask me about Q and okay. okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but, but, yeah, it's definitely uh, something that's going to bear watching. And then I think, don't we have a uh, some action on the Republican side in, in Ohio on the, in the Senate primary there? We do. We have some Senate races starting to take shape. Uh, Ohio, we saw Jewish Insider report and interview Josh Mandel, the former state treasurer there. This will be his third time uh, attempting a Senate run. Uh, he ran as the nominee in 2012 lost to Sherrod Brown. Uh, There was a second attempt where he was in the race, but then got out of the race. Now it says he's all in, uh, running very clearly as a Trump Republican. So to our earlier conversation, we will see how that plays out, both in the Republican primary, but then uh, in a general election. And and Rich, does he know something that, that, that we don't know? 
because it would seem to me that running as a Trump Republican, at least in Georgia, which is obviously a long way from where Josh Mandela is running, didn't work out very well for, for folks in the, in the Georgia Senate race. So it, it, does he know something that, that we don't know or, or that has been unreported? I mean, I know there's a special sort of Dakota ring that I don't have, uh, but is uh, what am I missing? Well, in his words, uh, Ohio is Trump country, uh, and that is true on the map uh, from the last election. Uh, and listen, in Georgia, there's a lot of arguments to go around if the president of the United States wasn't taking on the sitting Republican leadership of the state, the depressing turnout. Uh, would the Republicans have won that Senate election? Obviously, one of the reasons why there's animus between him and, and leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. Ohio is a different state. Uh, we'll see how that plays. Um, but what plays in Ohio may not play in Wisconsin. Fair enough. Fair enough. Before we go into our interview of Barack Ravid, it's, it's worth noting uh, some unsettling news this week about a Pentagon report from late last year that really outlines in pretty stark relief the threat of white supremacists within the military. It, it, it goes into some detail about how veterans are actually a highly prized recruits for supremacist groups. And uh, sometimes the leaders of these groups even enlist in the military primarily as a recruiting tool for their for their groups. The Pentagon report then goes out to lay out some recommendations for improved screening, uh, working on counter-extremism training. But, you know, Rich, you're, you're uh, a military reservist. Is this something we should be worked up about, or is this rear echelon paranoia? So I would say we should be concerned uh, because the report on its face is alarming, uh, but it's also something we need to put into a larger context uh, of our past concerns uh, over different groups trying to infiltrate the military. So the military is a huge institution, right? We can't indict the entire military. Uh, there are obviously going to be bad apples who join up uh, for a range of, of reasons. Uh, and over time, there have been reasons why Congress has investigated the military, has wanted to see uh, if there needs to be steps taken for training, uh, for uh, weeding out uh, people who are in the recruiting process, screening uh, programs. Uh, we had uh, just a decade ago, uh, you know, this was a big uh, hoopla in the Congress based on an FBI report that gangs were recruiting active duty military personnel and the gang members were going into the military and what we we're going to do about the national gang threat that was infiltrating the military. Uh, we've had issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the military. We've had threats of Islamic radicalization in the military. And so, absolutely, this is something we need to be watchful for. We need to take seriously. We need to monitor. We need screening programs. We need training programs. The one thing I will say as a caution is we cannot let this slide into an intimidation of political orientation. It, you know, it's one thing to be an actual white supremacist part of a separatist organization, a domestic terrorist. It's another thing to simply be a Trump supporter. Uh, and, and we can't allow in our military political views to be translated into something else. And that's our news of the week. We'll have more topics to address next week, but let's get to our featured guest. Jared, take us away. Barack Ravid is the diplomatic correspondent for Walla News. He's also a contributing correspondent for Axios, where he publishes a weekly dispatch called Axios from Tel Aviv. Barack, welcome to the Limited Liability Podcast. Uh, Hi, guys. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. Great to have you. So you're an Israeli journalist. You're based in Tel Aviv. You tweet in Hebrew and in English. You cover D.C. like an insider, but you're not actually in Washington. So like, 
How does that all work? <laughs> Do you ever sleep? Uh, yeah. No, I'll give you now. Now I'll give you the pitch that uh, I gave um, a lot of people or that I still give a lot of people uh, when I'm trying to get uh, people to talk to me, uh, uh, both here and in Washington. And what I tell them is that I, uh, several years ago, I managed to um, develop the system of having one foot here in Israel on the ground, but another foot in Washington. So... When I when I'm here in Israel reporting for Axios, I'm reporting as a local correspondent uh, in Israel. This is how the sources here see me as a local correspondent because I also report for an Israeli media outlet. But in Washington, when I uh, report about stuff, so people see me also as a local correspondent because I work for for Axios. So it gives me an edge. Uh, on, in both uh, in both places, and um, it somehow you know the system uh, uh, worked uh, actually much better than I um, than I anticipated. Um, because I got to tell you something: before I r- started writing for Axios, I was in Haaretz, and Haaretz, as you know, also have uh, an English edition. And when I was in Haaretz, I always used to say that. Um, an Israeli correspondent writing for Haaretz coming to Washington is like uh, Clark Kent coming from Krypton to Earth. Uh, meaning that in Krypton, he's just another guy. Sometimes he's not, you know, the leading guy. But when he comes to, to Earth, all of a sudden, you know, he's Superman. So when you're in Haaretz and you're coming to Washington, all of a sudden, in comparison to all the other Israeli reporters that don't have an English version, at least back at the time, now today there's more Israeli media outlets that have an English version. So when you come to Washington, all of a sudden, you're the guy that everybody wants to talk to because all the rest of them, Nobody knows in in Washington who, what's Channel Two or what's Channel Ten or what, or, or you know who's uh, uh, Amit Segal. But when I came as Barack Ravid from Arats, everybody knew who I am because they were reading me in English. So I discovered that uh, there's still a big difference between an Israeli media outlet in English and a U.S. media outlet. The way the sources see that and you know i i guess you know you might be able to also give you know your take on it um it's different because when people see you as a local reporter they treat you better so so kind of in that vein uh you know it must be challenging to think about all the different audiences for your reporting right because if you're a financial reporter you're you know you know who your audience is the investment community the banks the businesses uh, if you're working a state house capital right the, there's legislators and the governor and it's your constituency as a reporter of who you're sort of delivering the news to and so what are the angles you're looking for you have this beat where there's multiple audiences right Israel America the Gulf now post Abraham Accords how do you balance writing for multiple audiences that don't see the world the same way at the same time? Um, it's it's complicated because sometimes when you write about uh, something that happens in America, like within the administration, I had to, for example, uh, I had to explain to my readers in, in Israel what is the deputies uh, committee on, at the NSC. 
Okay, it's it's uh, you know because they don't know. But people in in America, for example, I just had today a story on on the on Israeli politics, and I had to explain to Americans what a surplus agreement is between parties in Israel in our proportional system, political system. So it's it's a challenge because uh, and and especially you need you want to do it uh, short and you want to do it smart. Uh, so it's very complicated to try and explain fifty words to an American, what the hell is this surplus agreement when most of the Israelis are not sure what is this surplus uh, agreement. So it's it's challenging. But I found that um, at the end of the day, uh, on when it comes to national security and foreign policy, and I, I admit that to myself uh, ev- almost every several days because it's a reality check, it's not really an issue that is... Uh, you know, very interesting for the majority of, of people who read the news. Uh, it, it's a very, at the end of the day, a very uh, small group of people, uh, both in Washington and in Israel and in the region and in Europe, that are interested in those issues. And uh, those people usually, you know, they know this thing, those issues better. They're more interested. So at the end of the day, uh it's it's a commu- it's a community and i i find myself sometimes really writing for a community you're you're like a cottage industry reporter that's what that's what we would say in america <laughs> <laughs> so uh if, if rich doesn't if i if i don't ask it rich is going to ask it and i'm going to be a lot nicer about how I, how I ask it rick brock what's the story or what do you make of the call or the non-call between president biden and bb that everybody's talking about that rich would tell you means that joe biden does not have love for israel and is not going to protect Israel's security and which i submit is just a scheduling issue in the middle of what is probably the busiest first hundred days for an american president since uh franklin delano roosevelt what do you make of it look I uh, two things. First, uh, I would love, okay, I would love this to be uh, a story about Biden getting back at BB for Obama and for Trump and all that because it's a much more interesting story, okay. And you know, it it's uh, it gives me uh, work. But uh, I think I really think I I don't think that's at least from I do not have any evidence or any information that this that the fact that they didn't have a call for four weeks now right i think yes four weeks more five weeks uh i i have no uh evidence that this is politically motivated okay on the one hand on the other hand i gotta tell you it is strange okay that uh biden made 12 calls i think to to world leaders um so again, I'm not saying that Israel is has to be in the top twelve. You know, maybe it's in the top fifteen, but it's it's still it it's just weird. Okay, it's just weird. Um, on the other hand, I think that it's I, I think it's more that the answer is more mundane than than we would like to we would like to think, and it's it's not about I think the story of. Like uh, uh, somebody at the White House told me, it's not it's not you, it's us, and it's just that you know we're not a priority right now, Israel, and it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we were we're pretty fine uh, in comparison to other parts of the world. 
our situation is pretty good. Uh, there's no crisis to solve right now. And there are other places in the world that actually are much more or urgent. Texas or the entire South, Southwest United States this week having record freezes and people without power and heat and, and all the like. But Rich wants to say something. I mean, I w- I w- uh, well, I, w- I would say that, you know, Great Britain, Russia, China, you know, France, we, we have a lot of relations, but Israel is one of our closest allies in the most dangerous region, and I agree with your sentiment. It's just weird. It's if if it's not intentional, it's a mistake. In that, in, that, in my view, it's, I'm not saying it pretends that they're anti-Israel or it's a message to BB. It's it's just it's just poor staffing. Like they should have made this a higher priority. I, I just think that it's really. Um you know, there were other calls, like the Secretary of Defense spoke to Benny Gantz and the, our, our Minister of Defense and uh, Secretary Blinken spoke twice to the Israeli Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi and the National Security Advisor spoke twice and all other groups of, of, of uh, officials spoke. So I really don't think that there's a political issue here. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, I think that at least the 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 argument i hear from the white house is uh listen we're we're is, with israel we're just we're fine there there's no there's no problem and for them the way they see it they they wanted to uh um you know reiterate the alliance with uh europe with uh france uk germany nato eu they had to he had to speak to to putin to get the start treaty uh going again he had to speak to uh to president xi of china because of the crisis in uh burma in myanmar and uh i just think that uh i guess you know He'll he'll call when he'll call. That's I just I really don't as I don't see it as such a big deal. And unfortunately, because it's really a great story, the only problem is I just don't think it's true. But let's talk about some of the issues you're covering. And and if you're listening at home right now and you're saying, "What is a surplus agreement?" Trust me, I wrote it down. We're going to ask about it. We're just not there yet. Okay, <laughs> we're going to get there when we talk about the Israeli elections coming up. But, but let's let's take this in order. Uh, Iran. Right, you're covering a lot on the Iran deal, the return to JCPOA potentially, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, the Israeli side of the equation, the Gulf side of the equation. What are you hearing right now? Uh, let's start with sort of the Israeli side. W- what are their perceptions, and what are they preparing from a strategy uh, for for this administration? Um, unfortunately, uh, the Israeli government, as you know. Uh, is getting ready mostly for a fourth election in two years. So, and, and it's, it's really a disaster because, uh, it affects almost everything here. This, this political dysfunction, uh, it, it affects every, every field in this country. And the strategy for on Iran is just another casualty of, of this, uh, uh, very, uh, uh, problematic political situation. So when you say, uh, you know, when you ask what's the strategy, I got to tell you, uh, there's no strategy yet. Uh, why? Because Benny Gantz, the minister of defense, uh, and prime minister Netanyahu aren't really on talking terms. Uh, and you know, it's pretty hard to, uh, to strategize when you don't really speak to the, your minister of defense. And 
within the Israeli system until several days ago, there was a huge, huge, huge fight between the director of Mossad, our, our foreign intelligence service, and the national security advisor uh, on the question of who's going to be the point of contact for the Biden administration on Iran. And it was really, I'm telling you, this was a fierce fight with the director of Mossad really campaigning in the press for the job. It was like, uh, you know, a primary on who's who's going to talk to the Americans about uh, about Iran. And wasn't it sort of not too long ago when the person who was the director of Mossad didn't even sort of like get identified publicly? I mean, that it was that, that like, yes, forget about them campaigning publicly, but like you never even really knew who they were until relatively. Yeah, until several years ago, you didn't know who the head of Mossad was, but the current head of Mossad, Yossi Cohen, who's he's on the one hand very talented uh, and successful head of Mossad, on the other hand, he's totally in in politics for several years now, and he's building himself uh, to be Netanyahu's successor and when this is your state of mind then it influences uh, part of your professional work and then you uh, start uh, um, uh, wasting a lot of your time speaking to reporters and uh, um, and spinning stuff and making sure that uh, you get credit in, in the yeah, there's media. There's also been a lot of reporting on some sort of falling out between the IDF uh, and the Mossad as well over Iran planning and who's in the lead and we've seen the IDF chief of staff talk about possible military options, etc. that's long been opposed by the Mossad historically. Is that a dynamic playing out as well? Or is all of this sort of let's wait till the election, and it'll all sort itself out? It's all all of that. All of that is part of, of, you know, domestic politics in Israel. Okay, it's just, you know, senior officials positioning themselves politically. Uh, it has, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with policy. But let's say it's only 50% policy, 50% uh, uh, politics. Um, you know, Yossi Cohen, the director of Mossad, attacked the IDF chief of staff about his speech, mainly because uh, he tried to uh, uh, sort of uh, do damage control for uh, uh, reports in the press several days before that he basically invited himself for a meeting with Biden at the White House. And those press reports weren't, let's say, people at the White House didn't really like that. So I think this was part of uh, uh, part of that. Uh, so again, there's uh, the political crisis in Israel uh, makes it very, very hard to really strategize on Iran. And it's unfortunate because we really need to strategize on Iran. Okay, that's the Israeli side of the equation. You're also sourced on the American side of the equation. What are you hearing? What is going on? Obviously, a lot of skepticism about where they're heading to go back into an Iran deal, different kinds of messaging to different people of what their intentions truly are of improving the deal or going back first. What do you think they're planning right now? I, I think they still don't know. Honestly, I really think they still don't know. Um, I think uh, the main uh, problem right now, the main uh, issue is that the Iranians, uh, it's not like, uh, uh, okay, Biden comes in, says, I want to go back to the deal. And the Iranians say, ah, okay, great. No problem. We're, we're going back. No, they're saying, you know, uh, you remove all the sanctions and then we'll see. Then we will see if you really remove the sanctions. Then we will see if we get benefits from the sanctions. And then we will uh, uh, tell you if we are ready to go back to compliance or not. 
uh, and and let me let me I I, I gotta try uh, uh, um, you know a thesis that I have on on you guys and you tell me what you think uh, because there's this concept that both the Biden administration and the Iranians want to go back to the 2015 uh, nuclear deal but what if the Iranians don't want to go back to the nuclear deal maybe they just you know want to drag things on and on and on and not go back oh to the- I actually have that thesis as well uh, this is a distinct possibility in my view that they, that they want to make the Biden administration negotiate just over getting them back to something like the JCPOA and never be able to move on to any other issue and so that explains their behavior but they don't leave the JCPOA and I'll tell you why they get to keep the sunsets so long as the Security Council resolution is still there so, so, so they want to keep the best parts of it without any sort of any of the the more restrictive elements and by the way they're not going to negotiate is that what you're getting at that that maybe they don't want to that that this is just all i mean well i know what you're getting at that this is just all a stalling tactic uh until it sunsets right that was to me or to rich either one of you guys i have two two experts here (laughs) i'll just say that the one hiccup is they need money they need money really badly so i they'll test out the Biden administration to see if they enforce the sanctions first. But if they do enforce the sanctions, then they have to come to the table for something to get some money. So here's, so here's my take on it. Maybe they don't need the money. Okay. Because that's what we tell ourselves. They need the money. So they will go back to the deal, but maybe they'll say, as we heard the Iranian Supreme leader, Ali Khamenei saying just three weeks ago, and he said, a resistance economy. And he say, he told his, it was a meeting with his senior leadership in Iran, and he told them, I told you so. I told you that the Americans will cheat us. I told you that they're not serious. I told you that uh, we can trust them. So now we will go my way, resistance economy. We will manage ourselves. It's not, you know, we will deal with the sanctions and we will build our economy uh, ourselves. Um, and when people say, ah, no, yes, he says that, but you know, at the end of the day, they'll understand they, they can't. So in the same speech, in the same speech, Khamenei said that he doesn't want to, uh, uh, get certain, uh, kinds of COVID vaccines because people in America are still dying. So this shows that the vaccines that they get there don't work. Okay. Did you get, this was his argument. So. When, when this is his argument about COVID, I, I just tell myself that there is a possibility that he'll say, so what if there are sanctions? We will manage and, they will, and they're not going to go back to the deal and they're just going to continue uh, like that and you know, manage the sanctions. The Chinese are buying their oil. The Russians are, are, are doing, still doing business with them. The Syrians are doing business with them. Uh, I'm not saying they're not in a bad economic situation, but there's no economic collapse. Not yet. Not yet. I'll just say that. Not yet. So shifting gears, um, because as much as Richard would like, this is not the Iran JCPOA podcast. I just, you know, like Barack, I just follow the news. I just follow the news. Um, So uh, I would say the one real accomplishment of the Trump foreign policy, um, the Abrahamic Accords, there are some people starting, you know, some of the Twitter warriors are starting to say that, that, well, you know, with these uh, rebuking uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, maybe the Biden 
administration is going to upset the apple cart and the whole thing is going to fall apart. Any truth to that? I tend to think that uh, it's a nothing burger. Listen, I don't think the the agreements uh, between Israel and the Gulf states and Morocco and Sudan are going to fall apart. And if they do, it's not because of uh, the U.S. I, I mean, I think there was a lot of progress already. Uh, with the UAE, you know, we just have their ambassador coming here in a few weeks. Uh, we have an embassy there. <clears throat> we passed the point of no return, meaning that I'm not saying that those will, this relationship will go on forever. I mean, there could always be a Gaza war or, I don't know, some other drama that will change this. But it's not about what the Biden administration does. That That's it. We, we passed. This train is, has left the station. Okay. Uh, same with Bahrain. I I think we're 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 we made a lot of progress with Bahrain. It's not gonna change because of anything the Biden administration or any other U.S. administration is going uh, to do. Uh, Morocco is still a question mark because the U.S. needs to decide if it's still going to continue to recognize the Western Sahara as part of Morocco. Uh, at least. Um, all the signs that I get is that Biden is not going to roll this back. Uh, and if he's not going to roll this back, then there's no uh, no reason to think that anything will happen to the deal with between Israel and Morocco. Uh, and with Sudan, I just think that it's, um, it's not about Israel-Sudan. With Sudan, it's about U.S.-Sudan. Because uh, Israel is trying to do everything it can to get America to help Sudan. It started with the Trump administration, with the, uh, removing them from the terror list, and now I guess it will be the same way with the Biden administration, with giving them uh, economic aid. The relationship between the Sudanese leadership and the Israeli leadership is, although it's like it's the deal that is... Uh, uh, less mature than the other ones, but the re the personal relationship is very very strong. So I'm not concerned about Saudi Arabia. Um, look, uh, people in the Trump administration thought that if they won the election, they could have gotten uh, a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia between six to twelve months. Um, I think it's not unlikely. Okay, I mean, I think it's they're they're. There's a good chance they're right. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Biden administration can't get such a deal. Uh, but it, it needs to decide how much it wants it. Because when it comes to Saudi Arabia, this administration will have to decide what's more important. Uh, is it more important to be uh, ideological and go all the way with the Khashoggi issue, publish the CIA report, sanction Muhammad bin Salman, all of that. Uh, there are good reasons, by the way, there are good reasons to do that. There are also good reasons not to do it. Okay, there are, also, there are good reasons to say, okay, what happened happened. Now we need to be more, let's say, <clears throat> realistic and pragmatic and to see how we can move forward with the Saudis. Uh, so it's at the end of the day, it's really a political decision by Biden on how he wants to move forward. If he plays his cards right, I think he can get a grand bargain with the Saudis that part of it can be uh, Israel-Saudi Arabia. This grand bargain can also include other things he wants to achieve, meaning steps from Israel 
on the Palestinian issue, for example, this bar- grand bargain can uh, uh, deal also with issues like Yemen. This grand bargain can deal with issues like human rights. But the question is, does Biden wants to get the grand bargain with Saudi Arabia or not? And you mentioned uh, the Trump administration's view had they been reelected and they were obviously key to negotiating a lot of this. Uh, you were very well sourced at that point with a lot of the Trump people who are working on these deals. Uh, do you still keep in touch with them? Do, are they still talking like Kushner and Berkowitz and others um, or, or is, are those channels sort of now sidelines uh well i i mean i'm still uh, in touch with uh many of the people i was in touch with when they were in the white house now it's really on a more let's say let's call it a, a more social uh uh basis and uh i think that uh, jared and ivanka are still you know they just moved to uh miami i think they're you know uh, getting organized uh, uh, there. Um, new day schools. Got to got to got to find a whole new day school. Uh, well, yeah, and you know, and to and to decide what they want to to do. I mean, I hear that uh, Ivanka is thinking of running for uh, a Senate seat. So uh, so let's see. I don't know, but uh, I am still in touch with many people from the Trump administration. Uh, I think that um, you know they were. I I, I don't think they got enough credit for some of the things they did i think they were um they there are a lot of things that you know the trump administration did that i think were very negative but there were a lot of things the trump administration did they were very positive uh the abraham accords is i think the best example but there are other examples uh so and at the end of the day I think that, uh, you know, you can, uh, like Trump, you can dislike Trump. Obviously, this is a very emotional issue in America. But if I'm trying to, you know, put emotions aside for a minute, I think that, you know, Trump and his team really managed to create a positive change, uh, in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, it's not, you know, as someone who, who is living here for 40 years, that's not something that happens every day. So I think they deserve uh, credit for it. At the same time, I think, uh, you know, they, they also made several mistakes um, with the Palestinians because I think that they could have, uh, 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 they could have gotten also uh, some progress with the Palestinians. And I think that because of several mistakes, they, they missed this opportunity. Well, transitions, uh, not just in the United States, obviously, potentially in Israel as well, with the election coming up. So perfect time as any uh, to segue there. What do you make of the state of play right now in the Israeli election? Is Bibi Netanyahu still the prime minister come summer? Um, And maybe in your answer, we'll we'll get into some follow-ups, but uh, maybe explain what a surplus agreement is for everybody who's still Googling. Okay, the short answer is that... uh, uh I I do not see right now any possibility that uh, somebody else who is not Netanyahu will form the next government. Okay? This does not mean that Netanyahu will form the next government. My assessment is that right now, most chances are, and I hope you're all sitting down, most chances are that we will go for a fifth election. Really? Wow. Okay, believe it or not. I mean, that's at least... Wow. Th- that's some news. That's the news yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, that's numbers. I mean, you look at the numbers, 
this is what the numbers tell you right now that most chances are that we will go for a fifth election okay you need to break that, that you need to break that down of how that works I listen there, there are people who are listening to this podcast who are thinking this is right versus left Democrat Republican no no the, the, no, the parliamentary system already makes it complicated enough plus you have a right versus farther right election going on so so sort of break it down for what's going on so first so first in Israel there's really no left and right anymore Okay, if you think that there's really, uh, you know, uh, public debate on left and right issues on conservatives against liberals, this is not the case. The, the, the whole, the previous third, the previous three election campaigns and this fourth election campaign and probably the fifth election campaign are on one issue and one issue only. It's about whether Netanyahu will manage to get a majority big enough to uh, abort his trial. That's it. That's it. Okay? And in Israel, in order to do that, you need to get at least 61 members of Knesset in your coalition that are ready to vote for a law that will uh, cancel the trial, delay the trial, freeze the trial, or that you get a coalition that all the members of the new government will be ready to vote in favor of firing the attorney general and uh, appointing a puppet uh, instead in order for the puppet to decide to uh, freeze the trial. This is the whole story. Okay, it's not about Okay, well not well well now well now we've added another another layer here. This is like this endless layer of cakes yeah. at a wedding. Uh there's a trial going on, it has to do with corruption, bribery. It's been going on for quite a while now, but it's never actually moved forward. It's hung over several elections. Just very briefly, we can't go too deep into it, but briefly just summarize for our listeners what that's about and how it ties into what you're talking about if the Knesset were to vote for a bill to to provide yeah. immunity to the prime minister so so all the indictments there are three indictments against netanyahu i don't know if you want to get into all the details but all of those indictments are about alleged crimes that netanyahu was involved in when he was prime minister it's not something that happened in the past that before he became prime minister only now people are you know dealing with it no it's things that happened until you know two or three years ago okay for example Netanyahu uh, um, received uh, a, a systematic uh, uh, um, uh, Netanyahu systematically received from several uh, business tycoons uh, cigars and champagne that were worth more than two hundred thousand dollars. Okay, and they they were delivered in a in a in you know systematically to his residence okay with a driver that went to pick up the uh the merchandise with code names okay when they when they asked those business tycoons for the for the cigars and champagne you, they called the cigars uh the leaves and they called the champagne the pink ones because the bottles were pink okay this is you know this is really stuff from you know this is really criminal behavior 
So this is a question about whether the prime minister can actually be prosecuted, not a question of fact here, right? Like everybody, this is the facts are not really in dispute so much as the yeah the facts are question not in of dispute. whether exactly. the prime minister can. And and by the way, we had this we had this conversation in in the United States about uh, about President Trump and and his business dealings and self enrichment and annulments. Uh, and so, so re- really, it's all on BB behind. It's all about the uh, whether people think he should be held to account for this. And you think it's I've, 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 obviously we yeah. should be fair. Netanyahu says that the facts are in dispute. We should just you know. Uh, no, no, no. Actually, no. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing. This is the main thing. He actually doesn't. What he says, for example, in what I just told you, he doesn't deny that uh, he got the champagne and the cigars. He just says that they were gifts from friends. Okay? So it's, it's, that's the thing. He doesn't deny it. Or, for example, in, in the second case, okay, the second case is just amazing. Just imagine, okay, I'll try to give, to give an analogy from the U.S. Imagine President Trump, okay, uh, conspiring with uh, uh, with Mr. Zucker, the, the president of CNN, okay, to uh, uh, get a deal that will get to CN- to will get CNN to give Trump positive coverage in return for Trump making sure that Fox News scaled down their broadcasts. C- can you imagine such a thing happening? I can actually. It, it- <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I can, and you know, I think history will be the judge of whether things like that actually did happen. Okay, okay, let's go, let's get, let's, yeah. let's get let's get back on track. Okay. Yeah. I, I, so, okay, so we have Rich, this, we have these. Being, being well, I you know, I, I just well, I just want I just want to make sure because there's a lot of layers here, and it's like now we have like different pieces of pizza that have to fit back together somehow. So, so we have this election. It's a parliamentary system. Uh, Netanyahu wants to get the largest possible vote share for a right wing block so that he can lead that and get the Knesset to pass a bill to immunize him from prosecution uh, for this ongoing case. Yeah. At the same time, he has sort of a member of his own party who has defected, uh, is trying to outflank him on the right. Uh, So I guess the question is, if Netanyahu is the next prime minister, if if we're going back to election and and some sort of a hung hung election uh, where for a caretaker government, I assume that now is still the prime minister. Is there, is there exactly. any... Exactly. And it's not only that Netanyahu, it's not only that Netanyahu is still the prime minister. Listen to this. If there's a fifth election, okay, if there is a fifth election, Benny Gantz is still the minister of defense, and Gabi Ashkenazi is still the foreign minister, and even if they're not elected to the Knesset. It's a, it can be a really crazy situation. Okay, so so bring this home now to a Washington audience. How does this impact the Biden administration's planning on Iran, on peacemaking, on whatever their issue is that they have in mind that they want to accomplish? You know, is this just they're going to have to deal with BB indefinitely and they just need to figure out how to do that? Uh, is the Israeli system too paralyzed to confront Biden if they disagree? Like, how does this play out? I think that the main question that Biden needs to answer is what is he going to do if Netanyahu gets to 61 and tries to pass laws to uh, cancel his trial and to uh, uh, bypass the Supreme Court? Because if this is the case, we are in a whole different territory. And if it was any other and country, we would probably condemn that. <laughs> I think you would do much more. Okay? I think you would do much more. 
So it is, I think that there, there is a scenario where because of, you know, Netanyahu's domestic political uh, uh, maneuvering and his attempts to stop his trial, we can find ourselves in a, a really uh, groundbreaking situation with regards to the relations between Israel and the U.S. Because we always used to say that we have shared interests and shared values. And rule of law was one of them. And if rule of law in Israel uh, will be uh, uh, affected like that, I think we will have a big problem. Well, I will point out in the U.S., you know, we have a similar concept. I mean, that's been one of Bibi's arguments is he wants Israel to be like the U.S., where you can't actually bring the charges against a sitting president. You have to wait until the president's out of office. You can impeach the president. You can remove the president with a different tool, with a political tool. But the legal system can't be applied. But you know what people tell him when he says that? They say, great, we agree. But in America, we have another thing that's called term limits. And, and, and by the way, okay. by the way you- <laughs> and, 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 and. And he used to, you know, when Netanyahu just entered politics, there's a great interview from the 1990s, early 1990s. He gives an interview and he says, you know, if I'm prime minister, I'm going to, the first law I'm going to pass is term limits. And after two term limits, uh, after two terms, the prime minister needs to go because if he stays, he can only do bad things. I guess he changed his mind. Not to mention the fact that we have this, you know, we don't change laws in the middle of trials, in the middle of legal proceedings. Um, you know, that, that tends to run afoul of a couple uh, yeah, different things. Yeah. Mark, we could probably stay on here for a, a, a month worth of podcasts, but I think... But I just want to tell you another, just another sentence on the elections. Basically, it's, it's actually a very similar election right now, because Rich, you asked uh, before about Gidon Sa, who was from the Likud, the leader of the Likud, who left the Likud, formed a party, an anti-Netanyahu party. That's very similar to what happened to the Republican Party when you had the never-Trumpers that once again in this, in this election campaigned against Trump. And I think that the main question in our elections right now is if we are going to have our Georgia. Okay, and right now we don't. The polls show that there's not going to be an Israeli Georgia. Okay, uh, there might not even be an Israeli Arizona. So uh, uh, this, I think, there are, it's a very similar situation, even though our political systems are very different. But it's it's there are a lot of similarities. Well, it's more similar than you think because the Lincoln Project. Uh, was very much reported that decided to try to go to Gideon Saar and say, well, hey, hire us. We'll be your never Trump uh, people. We'll be your never BB. It and didn't of course, work. With, it didn't and of course, work. That doesn't work with Israeli domestic politics. And then with all the revelations recently, uh, it got a little worse for him, too. Fantastic. All right. So, so you're Israeli, but you've spent time in, in the United States and uh, want to ask you what your favorite American food is. You know, I would say uh, chicken wings. Like bar- barbecue you, or buffalo you know, you wings? You don't say. You don't say. Yeah, yeah. Buffalo wow. wings. Wow. You've been listening yeah, to yes, our podcast. Yes. Thank you. Although, That's great. That's great. <laughs> although although it's, it, there's also um, there's, there's a place that I told myself that I have to go post-COVID is that I heard that there's this um, place in New York, a kosher uh, uh Texas uh, barbecue place. Yes, and I, I got to go to this place. You'll be my guest. It's about eight blocks from my house. It's called Izzy's Barbecue. It is phenomenal. 
and uh, you'll be yes. my guest, Brock, when you, when when this is all over. Wait, so we have Izzy's, we have Milts now. If you're a kosher barbecue out there, let us know. Send us an email. We want to try your food for free. It won't break any laws, and we won't pass any bills out of the Knesset. And I really, I ask any uh, kosher barbecue in America, please come to Israel and explain to people here how you can actually do kosher barbecue <laughs> that is good. <laughs> it's possible. Th- there's no need that it will be disgusting. You can actually um, do it very good. There are like millions of American American Jews who are able to do it, you know, so we can do it too here. Okay, so we have that. What is your favorite book or are you reading something right now uh, that you want to share? Uh, I will tell you the, one of the, uh, I want to recommend you a book, if it's okay. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, um, who was a book that was written by a friend of mine, Nadav Eyal, uh, who I worked with on, in Channel 13, is now the, he's the senior uh, columnist at Yediot Achonot, and he wrote a book that was called, in Hebrew, it was called The, the Rebellion uh, Against uh, Globalization. And it's going to come out in America, I think, in a, in a few weeks. It's going to call Revolt. And actually, it's, it's, it's a very interesting book because it really describes, okay, the, uh, what we've been through, uh, in the last several years and how the, uh, and how the world is, um, is in this situation where people are, con- people on the one hand, are in a the world is in the best situation it's been ever less people are dying less people there are less wars there's uh you know put aside covid the the the, the health uh people live longer uh on the one hand on the other hand people are scared all the time for many many things and uh they're scared about uh part of it about um the, about the fact that the world is changing, and this is what this book is about. And I uh, really recommend it to anybody who's interested, <clears throat> not only in world affairs or uh, foreign policy or things like that, but anybody who's interested in, in what's going on in his own country, because there are a lot of similarities, even if you, re- you read this book when you're in Israel or you're in America. Excellent. Look forward to reading that. Um, one last one. Um, a journalist who you consider a role model, Jonathan Swan. Jonathan Swan from from Axios, my colleague. That first, I uh, you know I owe him a lot. That he was he played a, um, uh, a key role in in bringing me to write at Axios. And second, the guy is just the most talented uh, reporter I've ever seen. The most fruitful. The most uh um the, really the, one of the smartest people i know and uh i think that uh if there's one person that one journalist that every week i read this stuff and i say wow i i would like to 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 know how to get those stories so that's jonathan swan Right, that's how I feel about Rich as a podcaster. I always, you know, wh- whatever he says, I say, like, damn, I wish I had said that first. Oh, that's very nice. Oh. That's very nice. No, I mean, I think maybe you can have an, an Axios on HBO in Israel. I don't know what channel would take it, but it, it sounds like something that could work. Yeah, you know, we tried to do it. We wanted to do it, but uh, um, many Israeli politicians uh, 
uh, are very scared of speaking, uh, you know, giving interviews in English. And uh, the only guy who, who's not uh, afraid of doing that is not a big fan of mine. So it's a problem. <laughs> I assume that's the Prime Minister of Israel. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. All right. Well, you know, my last question, if, if we have you just for two more <clears throat> minutes, do you love Fauda or do you really love Fauda? And what does it mean to you? I, I will tell you, it's a great question because uh, first, you know, Avi Sakharov, who, you know, um, uh, one of the creators of, of the show is a very good friend of mine. We worked together for many, many years. And more than that, Fauda, you know, when I watch Fauda, it's, it sort of reminds me, uh, of, um, it, it's part of my life story. Uh, because I served for six years in the Israeli military intelligence <clears throat> and in the years of, of the second intifada. And uh, main part of my service was on uh, the Palestinian on, on dealing with the Palestinian issue and in in trying to stop terror attacks. And and a lot of the stories in Fauda are in a way there's like uh, it's it's some of it is based on things that you know it's not on real stories, but it's, it rhymes with, with things that actually happened. And some of the people that are, you know, some of the people that are mentioned there, there are people like that. I mean, there are real people like that. Okay. Uh, you know, Shin Bet officers and those, you know, people from those special units and, uh, uh, and Palestinians. And it's, it's, I think it has a lot of similarities to the reality. And, uh, so when I, when I watch Fauda, a lot of it is, is just about, uh, reminding myself how I spent, uh, you know, um, many years when I was, uh, much younger, 20 years ago. Well, and if you at home want to personalize the Fauda story for you, just check out Cameo. Uh, I know Captain Ayub does birthday calls, so uh, you, you can definitely uh, go there. Barack Ravid, a diplomatic correspondent for Walla News uh, and Axios from Tel Aviv. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It was great being here. Thanks, Yeah. Well, that was lively, Jared. I enjoyed that conversation. Uh, for all of you listening, if you have any comments, questions, show ideas, or tips, please send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family. If you don't like what you heard, don't tell anybody. Follow us on Clubhouse and on Twitter at, at JI Podcast. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Use social media for good and spread the word until next time this is limited liability podcast thanks for listening